And I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. On January the 12th of 2020, we started our walk through the Gospel of Mark. And of course, in January of 2020, we had no idea what the next two years would hold. Over these two years, we've spent 68 weeks in Mark, so we've taken some breaks. But this week, I went back and I read through that first sermon, just reminding myself of where we started, of, of where we've been. And on that first week, two years ago, we talked about why it's important for us to give time to this book, and not just to the Bible in general, but why should we give, I actually said, maybe two years to the Gospel of Mark. We talked about the reason the book was written, and we said that week, and we've said throughout, that in, the Gospel of Mark was written to help us see Jesus as the Son of God and to submit ourselves to him as his disciples. So we see that twofold reason for the book. He wants us to know who Jesus is, to recognize that he's the Son of God, and that we would see him as worthy of our lives. That we would submit ourselves to him as disciples. That's the purpose of the book. That's why it was written. And now we've spent these almost 70 weeks going deep and allowing God to convince us week in and week out of who he is and why he's worthy of our devotion. As I was reading through that sermon and reflecting on the time we've spent in this book, alongside the unexpected nature of the last couple of years, it just reminded me that we didn't know what was coming. And yet I'm thankful that in God's providence, He had us returning week after week to behold Him. And I know for myself, and I hope that this would be your testimony, that this has been sustaining this regular view of Christ, and the reminder that no matter what happens around us, he is worthy of our devotion. I'm thankful that he's done that in my life, and that's an answer to prayer. I often write out my prayers, and that first week I wrote out a prayer for our time in the Gospel of Mark. And it's interesting now, with the benefit of hindsight, to look back and to consider the things we prayed for that first week of January of 2020. I'll read just a portion. We prayed as we enter a new year, we can only anticipate the things that will come our way. But God, this is our hope. Would you make us ready for whatever may come through the hearing and application of your word? Would you use our time in this room week in and week out to equip us for the things that we will face? in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in all the places we go day in and day out, would you use your word to equip us? It's a good prayer for us again today, isn't it? So I was reminded of how crazy the past two years have been, and just re remembering that there was a chunk of Mark that I stood in the middle of the room looking at a camera, hoping that you would watch. And even still, we feel the effects. For some of you, COVID aside, these last two years have brought incredible change. 
incredible joys, difficulties, pains. And we are here this morning again acknowledging we don't know the future. We don't know what this year holds. But I trust today, as I did two years ago, that if we continue to strive to see Jesus rightly, he will use his word to strengthen us and to equip us for whatever comes. He can use his word to make us willing and faithful disciples. With that said, let's return to Mark. This morning we are picking up at a high-intensity point, both in Mark and in the story of Jesus. And it's a point where a pivotal question, I believe, is being asked. Here's the question that's going to kind of hold our time together this morning. Who is Jesus, and what are we going to do with him? Who is Jesus, and what are we going to do with him? Now, when we stopped six or eight weeks ago, before Advent, we stopped right in the middle of the longest night in the life of Christ. If you have your Bibles open, you can just kind of scan back over chapter 14. You might have some headings that will remind you of where we've been. The majority of chapter 14 is walking us through this one night. It started on Thursday evening when Jesus and his disciples gathered for that Passover meal. It was during that meal that Jesus announced a couple of things. First, he announced that he was going to be betrayed. Second, he announced through the breaking of bread and the sharing of cup that he was going to die and that the bread represented his body and the wine his blood. After the meal, the story takes us to Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus prayed and the disciples slept. And it's while they're there in the garden that Judas arrives with a crowd that's prepared to take Jesus into custody, and they do. He's arrested, led to the house of the high priest, where there's this middle-of-the-night trial. We talked about this, how they, they get Jesus, it's the middle of the night, they take him to the high priest's house, and there's people everywhere, right? The whole Sanhedrin is gathered, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're all there for this middle-of-the-night trial. They've decided this is the night, this is the time, he will be silenced once and for all. But their trial didn't go quite as smoothly as they might have hoped. Remember that section? They stuttered and stumbled and struggled to get their story straight. They had a hard time finding a charge that could be sustained. After all these failed testimonies, the high priest turns to Jesus and asks him a question directly. This is Mark 14, 62. Jesus answers the high priest and gives him exactly what he needed. Jesus says to the question of, are you the Christ? He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus makes this clear statement about who he is and why he's come and in that one statement, he gives them what they had been trying to put together all night, a reason for a charge. So we read there in verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? 
And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. At this point, the Jew, these Jewish leaders have decided Jesus must die. But there is still one problem. The problem is, is that they're living under the rule of another nation. They're living under the rule of Rome. And Rome has allowed them lots of freedom. For example, they can hold court. They can make judgment. They can even issue sentences. But there is one thing that Rome says they do not have the authority to do. They may not execute. They did not have the authority to put someone to death. So now they've come together in the middle of the night. They have their man. They have their charge. But they don't have the authority to do what they want to do. And that's where we pick up this morning. Jesus has been taken now to stand trial before the Roman ruler for the region. And this ruler has to make a decision. Is Jesus deserving of death like the Jews have charged? As we consider this early morning trial, here's what I want you to consider. We have three people or groups of people who are making decisions about who Jesus is, and what they're going to do with him. First, we have the Jewish leaders, and their decision has been made. Second, we have Pilate. He's the Roman leader, and he still has a decision to make. Who is Jesus, and what am I going to do with him? We're also going to see there's a crowd of people that are gathered, and they have to make a decision. Who is Jesus, and what are we going to do with him? And of course, this is a question that we all have to answer, isn't it? Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? It's a question we'll consider as we walk through this passage. Mark 15, starting in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 15. Hear the word of God. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they, <clears throat> they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man whom you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd cried out, Crucify him. 
And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. So we have a passage where there are people making judgments or decisions about Jesus. I'm going to keep this question in front of us. Who is Jesus and what are we going to do with him? And maybe when you hear that question, maybe your first inclination is, it's settled. I remember the time I made the decision. I've committed myself to him, and I, I hope that that is your story. Of course, we believe that those who are in Christ are secure, that everyone who is his will be kept by him. And yet, is this not a question that we still have to answer? Day in and day out? As you face temptation, as you face times of trouble, loss, grief, relationship struggles, or maybe when you come into unusual success and prosperity. Every day, every situation, we somewhere in us are answering this question, who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him? How does who he is and what he's done for me inform today? This particular decision, this particular season of life, we all have to decide who Jesus is and what we're going to do with him. And as we come to the text, we see Jewish leaders who, who for them, their decision has been made. We've become aware of their position throughout the Gospel of Mark, and it really comes to a head at the end of chapter 14. They've held their trial. They've made their decision. And as we start chapter 15, we see their decision officially affirmed. Remember, Jesus is arrested late at night. They had this hearing, this trial in the middle of the night. And by morning, it's time to go to the Roman rulers. But why are things moving so fast? Well, there's a couple of reasons. This is the week of Passover. This is the week when Jews from all over have come to Jerusalem for this feast and the celebration. This is the time when the Jew, these Jewish leaders had their opportunity, but they also know this could go sideways. There are a lot of people in the city, and that could work to our advantage. But there are also many in the city who know Jesus, respect Jesus, and who could choose to stand for him. So it is incumbent on them to make sure that they get this done and over as quickly as possible. What we also know is they have a deadline. The feast officially begins soon, and no executions will take place after sunset of Friday night. So this is the day. It's Friday. It's the day they need everything to be done and over. So we see in verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, some have suggested and I don't know enough about the Jewish legal system to know if this is completely accurate, but some have suggested that 
it would be improper, not legal, to have a middle-of-the-night decision. So they have their consensus. Now we must wait until daylight so this can be made official. That seems plausible. We also know that they want to be first in line at Pilate's door for this first, first decision of the day. They have determined he must die. They bind him up, which is interesting. Jesus has never resisted them. But they bind him up and they lead him away. And the verse says, they delivered him over to Pilate. And that word, significant. That word delivered, it could also be translated as a form of betrayal. In fact, it's the same word that's been used three times now in the Gospel of Mark to refer to Judas. He is the one who, with malicious intent, delivered over Christ. And now we're told that Jesus is betrayed again. Twice betrayed, first by Judas and now by his people, the leaders of the Jews. And while these are things that should grieve us, it's also important to remember that even these wicked plans of betrayal are known by God, and they're part of his plan. In fact, Jesus specifically foretold this very thing. We could go back, and I don't remember when it was, but Mark chapter 10, sometime last year probably, Jesus says, or Mark says that Jesus was taking the 12, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So we follow the story. We see Jesus being betrayed, handed over, just like he foretold, just like God had planned. This was God's plan for our salvation. God working even through sinful actions of wicked men. And yet, they are making their decisions, aren't they? The Jewish leaders have made their decision about who Jesus is and what they're going to do with him. They are prepared to put him to death. So they, without that authority, must go to Pilate. Who's Pilate? Well, Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. Judea is the region where Jerusalem is. Now, Pilate's not the highest authority. The highest authority is Caesar. At this time, a man named Tiberius. But Pilate's been set over this region, and his, his home, his office, they're in Caesarea. However, one of Pilate's main job as the ruler over Judea, the place where Jerusalem, the, the center for Jewish life is, one of his main things is to make sure that things don't get out of control in Jerusalem. And so he had a routine. If there's a big feast, if there's a big festival, if there's things going on in Jerusalem, I'm going to be there. If for no other reason to just remind them who's in charge. The last thing Pilate wants is for the Jews to rise up and become a threat to Rome, not on his watch. So this works out well for the Jewish leaders, doesn't it? The man they need is, is right there in Jerusalem. Here's something to consider. 
the reasons why they wanted to execute Jesus are great for them, but they're somewhat religious in nature, right? Remember we read in chapter 14 that they charged him with blasphemy. They want to kill him because of the position he's put himself in in regards to God. But that's not a charge that's going to carry much weight with a Roman ruler. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus has offended the Jews. What impact does that have on him? So the question for the Jewish leaders is, how do we convince Pilate that Jesus deserves to die? What Roman rule has he broken? Well, Mark doesn't give us as many details as the other Gospels, but we can go to Luke and we get a little bit more. Luke 23, verse 1, says the whole company of the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So notice what's happening here. Jesus has, in fact, claimed to be the Messiah hasn't he? The Old Testament tells us that Messiah will be a king. So while Jesus has never used these words, claiming to be a king, they do a little translation work. They're able to go to Pilate and say, this man has claimed to be a king, which means he's a threat. A king who could rival Caesar, a king who could threaten Rome. And remember, it's Pilate's job to protect Rome. So if they can convince him that Jesus is pitting himself against Caesar, there is a reason for Pilate to give them what they want. To go back to where we started, Pilate's in a position where he has to make a decision about Jesus. Is Jesus a king who's a threat to Rome? Or is Jesus simply a nuisance to Jewish leaders? Is he deserving of death or not. He has to answer the question, who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him? And what we see in Mark's telling of the story is that Pilate starts with a really forward question. He asks him, verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? It's the right question. Are you claiming to be a king? This is what you've been charged with. You've been charged of claiming to be a king, a threat to Rome, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers in a way that leaves room for more questions. He answers them, and I wish I knew the right inflection. I've tried a few. You have said so. You have said so, right? Like, we don't know, but you've said that I'm a king. It's an interesting answer because it's somewhat ambiguous. Notice what's happening, what's not happening. Jesus does not deny being a king. He also does not necessarily say that he is. So what's going on? Well, what we know is that Jesus is a king. And it would be dishonest for him to deny it. But he's not a king the way that would be a threat to Rome. He is not coming to rule and reign to set up his physical kingdom. Not yet. So he answers in a way that leaves room for interpretation. And Mark doesn't give us all the details, but 
we can fill in the blank. There was a little bit more to this conversation, and John records it in chapter 18. Listen to this. So we'll insert this at that same spot we are in the, in the story. Pilate enters his headquarters and calls to Jesus and says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? This is Jesus' answer. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And this is where Mark picks up. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Do you see how that would fit in? Mark doesn't give us the whole conversation, but he gives us the most important part. The question is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you said as much. He's not denying to be a king. In fact, he says that he has a kingdom. But he is denying to be the kind of king that would be a threat. And what we see at this point is Pilate is not ready to sentence him to death. We know that because immediately the Jews feel the need to bolster their case. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. They are scrambling. They've come this far. They do not intend to leave without a conviction. Pilate has a decision to make, but he is not yet convinced that Jesus deserves to die. For him, Jesus doesn't seem to be a threat. And so here are the Jewish leaders bringing more and more accusations. And Pilate has a decision to make. Who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him? Verse 4, Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? He gives Jesus an opportunity to defend himself, to answer his accusers. But at this point, what we see is that Jesus is finished speaking. Mark says in verse 5 that Jesus doesn't give any other answers. And what we're going to see from this point until his death is silence. He's been betrayed. He's been falsely accused. He's going to be beaten and killed. But through it all, he remains submissive to the plan and the will of God. His response or lack of response is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you have the scene in your mind? Jesus is in front of someone who has the power to either pardon him or crucify him. And yet as these false accusations keep coming, he doesn't say anything else. And what seems clear is that Pilate does not regard his silence as guilt. No, his silence produces a different response from Pilate. Amazement. Verse 5. Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Mark this down is another part where I wish we had more, right? Tell me about your amazement, Pilate. What's going on in your head? I wish we knew more, but there is enough to know that Pilate recognizes that Jesus is different than 
most. Usually when someone's being accused, when their life is on the line, this is before the Fifth Amendment, if your life is on the line, silence isn't normal. We know that Pilate already has a sense that the Jewish leaders are not bringing honest charges. At this point, he's not convinced that Christ is guilty of anything deserving death, and yet Jesus isn't putting up a fight. And Pilate's response is amazement. Now, I've already read the passage for you. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. No need for a spoiler alert here. Eventually, Pilate is going to hand Jesus over to be crucified. In the end, he's going to bow to the will of the Jews. But at this point, he's not convinced. And there's this sense in which he's intrigued by Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want to push you to keep thinking about the question. Who is Jesus, and what am I going to do with him? And I can't help but think there are a lot of people who look at Jesus and recognize there's something there. There's something to it. He's not a normal guy. There's something different about Jesus. And there's a lot of people who come to this point where they recognize probably shouldn't be ignored. Maybe like Pilate, they see the way Jesus lived, taught, and find themselves kind of amazed. I mean, after all, how many people do we know about 2,000 years later as much as we know about Jesus? Who else has gained that kind of following? I think there's many multitudes of people who look at that and say, something there. But friends, being amazed at Jesus isn't enough. Being impressed or intrigued by Jesus, it's not enough. At the end of the day, we all have to make a decision. Is Jesus someone that I will give my life for? It goes beyond having good thoughts of Christ. Jesus calls us to turn from ourselves and to follow him no matter the cost. This is bigger than showing up here every week and studying a book about a man who obviously made an impact. No, friends, you have a decision to make. I think the reaction from Pilate serves as a good reminder to us that there are so many people who have good thoughts of Jesus, but in the end, they don't make the right decision about him. And I think we need the reminder as we think about our own hearts. Coming here week in and week out and having good thoughts of Jesus, singing good songs about Christ, that's not the calling. If you are a true follower of Christ, then it means fighting sin. It means repentance. It means living for the sake of Christ and others. But there are so many and God forbid we be among them who are content with superficial intrigue. Jesus didn't come to be an interesting subject to study. He came to call disciples, people who would turn from their sins and turn to Christ no matter the cost. Pilate wasn't willing to do that. As Jesus stood there silent before his accusers, Pilate was amazed. He didn't think Jesus deserved to die, but in the end, he didn't give his life to Jesus either. He doesn't believe that Jesus deserves death, and for the moment, he thinks he can find a way out. What we see starting in verse 6 is that Pilate has a tradition. 
his tradition is that each Passover, while he's there in Jerusalem, he would release one prisoner to go free, a, a, a prisoner of the people's choosing. Sounds maybe like an odd tradition. There's speculation about the origin of it. Why would Pilate do this? I think it's fair to assume that this is his way of gaining goodwill. They don't like me. I'm the Roman ruler. I could gain a little favor, though. If every year we make this little tradition, they come to Jerusalem, I come to Jerusalem, and I grant them one wish. Who would you like to go free? Perhaps it's someone who has stood up against Rome, and while we don't like him, you like him a lot. We'll give you that guy back. What Pilate sees at this point is he has an opportunity. Maybe there's a way to kill two birds with one stone. Perhaps he can appease the Jews by admitting, yes, Jesus is guilty. But then at the same time, Jesus goes free. It's obvious, it's stated in the text that Pilate doesn't think the chief priests have pure motives. Verse 10, he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate doesn't think Jesus deserves the punishment. and I think he assumes the people see the same thing, right? Maybe they did. But the chief priests are a step ahead. The chief priests are covering all their bases, and they're hard at work winning the vote of the people. We're going to come back to Pilate, but first let's focus on the crowd for a couple minutes. As we think about those who have a decision to make, about Christ, the crowd has a decision to make. And we don't know much about them. We don't know who made up the crowd or why they are assembled. Some have suggested that, in fact, as I mentioned a while ago, Barabbas was, in fact, a, a hero of theirs for his insurrection against Rome. And perhaps they have gathered for that guy. It's possible. We don't know for sure. We're told that they come to encourage Pilate to make his annual release. And Pilate suggests Jesus do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? I mean, we don't know much about Barabbas, but what we do know is he was involved in an insurrection. He's a known murderer. So we have two people and the crowd has a decision to make. Jesus was well known, had a following, a reputation for healing, for miracles, a reputation for teaching and speaking in a way that no one else could. And there's Barabbas and he has a reputation as well. He's a rebel and a murderer. The crowd has a decision to make. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. As I think about this crowd, and most crowds, I find it hard to believe that there weren't some in the crowd who were conflicted. The choice is between a man who's praised for his miracles and teaching, and on the other hand, a man who's known for insurrection and murder. There had to be some in the crowd who were torn. But we see that in the end, the influence of the chief priest took over the crowd. A mob mentality takes place. 
we all know how hard it is to stand up against the majority. So before long, the entire crowd is calling for the death of Jesus. What's the question? Who is Jesus and what are we going to do with him? I think we all know that now, probably more than ever, standing for Jesus doesn't come with a lot of cultural equity. There was a time, especially where we live, when you could gain social standing by associating with Jesus. Aligning with Jesus was a good way to be known for positive things, but I think today, in many respects, it goes the other way. More and more, if you hold tight to Christ and the truth of the Scriptures, you're going against the grain. It is countercultural to believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, or that His Word has authority, that He should be obeyed above all else. With that being the case, I think we as we live in this world, when and where we do, we run the risk of being swept away with the crowd. So we all have to answer the question, what are we going to do when the crowd is loudly opposed to Jesus? When everyone around us is against the one we profess to follow? Are you going to have the courage to be faithful or will you fall in line with majority opinion? We don't know a lot about this crowd, where they came from or what motivated them, but there's no doubt they opposed Christ. And their opinion was loud enough and strong enough to bring Pilate to a place where he condemned a man that he did not believe deserved death. I think that's clear. Pilate didn't believe that Jesus deserved to die. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that Pilate believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who he should worship. There's no indication of that either. But as a Roman ruler who's given to uphold the law, his question in verse 14 is, what evil has he done? And we have other glimpses into the life of Pilate. In Luke 23, we read that a third time Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Matthew 27, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So Pilate takes water, washes his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate does not believe that Jesus deserves to die, but in the end he gives into the will of the crowd and he tries to justify it. We do this, don't we? His justification is this. Things could go bad. If I release Jesus and not Barabbas, or if I don't release anyone at all, there will be a riot. People will get hurt. It's better for this one man to die than for many others to be harmed on my watch. Maybe that would let him sleep at night. What we see in Matthew is that Pilate washes his hands, trying to say, this isn't me. But of course, that doesn't exonerate him, does it? He's the governor. It is his decision. What he decides is that Jesus will die and Barabbas will go free. The perfect son dies instead of a known criminal. Which is, friends, a picture of the gospel. The perfect son dies 
so that no known sinners can escape the punishment that we deserve. Praise God for the work of Christ who stands in the place of Barabbas so that he can stand in your place. At the same time, as we read the story, we see the plan of God for our salvation, but we also see the failure of Pilate. According to the text, Pilate gave up Jesus in order to appease the, cry to the, cra- the cries of the crowd. Pilate, verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He betrayed a man that he knew was innocent for the sake of opposing the mob. When faced with the question, who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? Pilate chose to convict and sentence an innocent man for the sake of his own reputation. As we think about the choice, the choice of the crowd and the way they were swayed, the choice of Pilate and the way he was swayed, we have a choice to make. Every day we have to choose, who am I going to stand for? Are we going to keep believing that his ways are best regardless of what the world says? Are we going to remain steadfast when our decision seems to cause trouble or conflict? I think most of us want to be faithful. And I hope this morning would be your chance to commit again. I will be faithful no matter what the crowd says. This morning we've spent most of our time looking at the thoughts and motivations of the chief priests and of Pilate and of the crowd, but we could start over, I won't, and go through the whole text again. And we could look solely at Jesus. And what we would see is that our Savior was steadfast, as we sang earlier. What we've seen over and over in the Gospel of Mark and what we will see until the end is that Jesus is unwavering. He knows what's ahead and he's steadfast. He's moving towards the cross because it's through his death that people will be saved. It's through his death that we can receive the Spirit so that we will have the power to be faithful. Friends, I don't want you to leave thinking that you have to muscle up the ability to stand firm. No, this is what Christ does in us. He died so that we could be enabled to stand. Jesus was faithful to the end. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he has called us and equipped us to be faithful even as he was. I had a whole list of cross references that just didn't find their way into the sermon. Let's get one in, though. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he's encouraging him to steadfastness, to carry on the work that has begun for the sake of the gospel. And at the end of that letter, he writes this charge to Timothy, and it reminds us of Christ and his steadfastness in the face of this particular situation in Mark 15. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. 
take hold of the eternal life for which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that kind of sums up everything I've been trying to say this morning, right? Keep going, be steadfast, be faithful, be courageous. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. What's he saying? Jesus made the good confession. He stood strong. Timothy, will you do the same? He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Jesus made the good confession, which enables us to do the same. Let's be faithful to the glory of God. Would you join me in pray? God, it's amazing what you have done for us. We just celebrated Christmas and considered your incarnation. And then there were 30 years from that point where you lived in this world, feeling what we feel, suffering as we suffer, being tempted as we are, yet never giving in to sin. And you did all that so that in the end, you could be betrayed by Judas, by the Jews, delivered over to death. In Christ, we thank you for your work on our behalf. And I pray that you would make us a people who are faithful, who will stand for you even when it's hard. Would you make us able? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we finish, I want to give us a chance to sing, to confess our allegiance to Christ together.